church this morning we begin a series in the book of Haggai. Some of you have never even heard of that book, so I'm going to help you a little bit. To find Haggai, turn to Matthew, and then go back to three books. Okay, so you've got Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, and then Matthew. You're using a few Bibles on page 791. Now, if you were to browse Amazon.com or go to a bookstore and look under the title section on leadership or self-help, you would likely find several books, several titles on the subject of time management. There's a lot of different approaches to managing time, a lot of different ways to go about it. About a year and a half or two years ago, the staff, we went through a book called What's Best Next. It's kind of a, quote, gospel-centered approach to managing your time. There's a lot of different sophisticated levels to it, right? Like 20, 25 years ago, Frank was out Everyone will use those letters to prioritize what they want to do. And in your own homes, you may have post-it notes put up, or you may have lists that you've written out and you cross off, cross off as you go, or you may have it on your phone, right? Your digital companion there is just knowing what you've got to do for that day. Of course, the goal with time management is prioritization. And this isn't easy in our world, is it? In our chaotic, distraction-filled world, it's not easy to prioritize. It's not easy to stay focused on the task. But just think about this. What do you do when your phone dings? Think back to when you were kids. You come home from school, and what did you do? You sat there and you waited for the phone to ring. Why? For Saturday. Why? Because you just hoped that one of your friends was going to call, so the phone would ring and you'd run to answer the phone, and you would hope that it was one of your friends so you could go play. Now, we just have these phones with us. And they ding all the time. And what do we do? We might be engaged in a conversation with someone. Hold on a second. Because we've got to make sure. And think about all the needless apps that so many of us have on our phones. I mean, and all the notifications are set on, right? So we don't miss a thing. I mean, who doesn't need to know when someone changes their profile picture, right? <laughs> and who doesn't need to know the latest celebrity gossip? And who doesn't need to know the moment that a new email hits your account? The world that we live in is chaotic and it's filled with distraction. But the truth is, this is less about time management than it is about life management. What are we going to do with our lives? How are we going to invest our time and our resources? How are we going to spend our days are we going to put temporal things in first place, or are we going to put eternal things in first place? Is it the physical that really matters, or is it the spiritual that is most important? Friends, the book of Haggai is about priorities. We're going to see that this prophet is repeating, repeatedly calling God's people and calling us to consider our ways. Why? Because God is concerned with our ways. He's concerned with what we do with our time, what we do with our energy, what we do with our resources. So I'd like for you to stand. We're going to read in the book of Haggai. Haggai chapter 1. We're going to read the first 11 verses together. Haggai 1, 1 through 11. The second year of Darius the king in the sixth month of the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. 
to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, uh, Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. And the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. If so much, harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land, and on the hills, on the grain, on the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their Great God, thank you for your thank you for your grace in giving us a chance. Thank you for the warning to consider our ways. Thank you for your spirit that enables us to examine ourselves and to make change. God, we pray that even now as we look to your word, we'd be changed. We, we would submit to it. We would recognize your glory prioritize your righteousness. Father, even now, encourage us and help us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. But when it comes to the prophet Haggai, we really don't know a whole lot about him. His preaching is mentioned in Ezra chapter 5 and in Ezra chapter 6 in coordination with the rebuilding of the temple. His name means Festival, so many have speculated that this man, Haggai, must have been born on a Jewish feast day. We don't know much about his parents or his lineage. Frankly, we don't know if he was a career prophet. Many have speculated that he was a priest. We don't know if God called him from a different profession, as he did some, like Amos, and, and placed him as a prophet. But what we do know is that at this time, we're going to see this was at about 520 B.C., the word of God came to Haggai, and Haggai delivered a message to God's people. In fact, four specific prophecies are contained in this short book, the second shortest book of the Old Testament, and Haggai now is speaking with the full authority of the word of God. The first Haggai this morning that we'll seek to understand this text by is this, in light of God's word, Examine yourself. In light of God's word, examine yourself. In verse 1, and then again in verse 3, we're told that the word of the Lord came through Haggai. So what does this mean? This means that God, through his prophet, was speaking to his people. And when God's spokesman stands before
before God's people and speaks, the people are to respond as God is speaking to them. Hear this. When God's word confronts us, when God's word confronts you and me in our lives, in our sin, our response is to humble ourselves and to embrace what God is saying to us. And friends, the consequences of sin and inattention to God's word are severe. Then we learn in verse 1, right? We learn the timing of Haggai's prophecy, right? In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month. Well, this wasn't Darius, the same king that was associated with Daniel, right, in the book of Daniel. It wasn't the same Darius. It was a Darius that came after King Cyrus, which we'll look at here in a little. This is a, a Medo-Persian king. But what this does tell us is that the people of God were in exile. They were held captive. Why? Because of their sin. Because of their rebellion against God's word. Because of their inattention to what God was speaking to them. God used foreign invaders to judge his people because of their inattention to his word. Now, church, we need to be clear on something. Unrepentant disobedience is a big deal. Unrepentant disobedience is a big deal. Now, we may sense that we're getting away with something. We may think, whew, I'm in the clear again. No big deal. I can keep on because the consequences aren't immediate. But friends, don't be deceived. Paul writes, Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. What a person sows, that person will reap. Now, I want you to listen to what the Apostle Peter writes to the churches here who are scattered being persecuted. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel? So you hear what he's saying? He's saying when there is sin, there is judgment. When there is sin, there are consequences. Now, listen to what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that a true follower of Jesus Christ should fear the condemnation and the wrath of God. It's very clear that we have been freed from the penalty and the power of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. However, there are consequences for our sin. And sin still elicits the judgment of God. Now, these consequences may be physical in nature. They may be mental or emotional or relational or financial. There are consequences, which we're going to see in just a few minutes. Now, based on these opening verses, the events of Haggai take place between the months of August through December in our calendar, August through December in the year of 520 B.C., 18 years before this, okay, 538 B.C., 18 years before this, as recorded in Ezra chapter 1, in fact, turn to Ezra chapter 1 if you will, God stirred in the heart of a pagan king, of a king who cared nothing about the glory of the God of Israel, nothing about the one truth of the king. God stirred in the spirit in the heart of this king so that he would issue a decree that the Israelites were to return to their land. Jerusalem in Judah and to rebuild. Alright? Listen to Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, 
that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods, with with beasts besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So, 70 or so years before this, God allowed these foreign invaders to come and to conquer his people and to destroy the city of Jerusalem and to carry all of them to captivity. And then, according to the word of Jeremiah, that God would be seen as true and sovereign, he works in the heart, in the life of this pagan king. Let me ask this question. Why would a pagan king who knows not the God of Israel, who fears not the God of Israel, want to give up some of his people? Why would he want to set free a conquered people? Why would he want them to go rebuild a temple to worship a God that he doesn't even care about? Why is that? It's only because God is at It's only because God is powerful. It's only because God is sovereign. It's only because God is true to his Word in church, this should give us confidence because we live in a society that is increasingly opposed and hostile to truth and to righteousness. And it's easy for us to fret at times, isn't it? But God's in control. He does all that He pleases. He accomplishes His purposes, friends, and we can trust His promises. Now, it's important to understand this context because all of this sets up what's happening, what Haggai is going to speak about in this book, the word that God gives to Haggai. After Cyrus made his decree, 538 B.C., a group of God's people returned. They were led by Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest, and likely Haggai returned at this time too. And history tells us that just a few years after they returned, Right, they return in 538, 536, they're there, they're, they begin to rebuild the temple this time. However, rebuilding is stopped short. Because the enemies of God's people come to discourage God's people. They come to oppose God's people. They come to confuse God's people. And then this leads to the Israelites just throwing in the towel and giving up. It leads to indifference and, and opposition. They, they just say, we can't do this anymore. They failed to persevere in obedience. They failed to persevere in obedience. They gave up. And just as an aside, friends, no one ever said that following Christ and obeying God's word would be easy. No one ever said that. In fact, it's a lot like swimming upstream. Because you're going against the current. If your desire is to live a righteous life, if your desire is to obey the Lord Jesus Christ, it's swimming upstream in our culture. And frankly, it's impossible in our own strength. We can't do it. But God has given us the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit of God who walked with the Spirit enables us to walk with the Spirit and to obey the Spirit and not to not carry out the desires of the flesh. Obedience is not easy, but friends, it is what we are called to do. We are called to 
so that's where we pick up in Haggai. Verse 2, we know the word of the Lord has come to Haggai. And in verse 2, God through Haggai says, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Now just think about that. Isn't that strange? The people of God are saying it's not time to rebuild the house of the Lord. But isn't that the very reason that they were sent back? Isn't that exactly what the king, Cyrus, he said, go do this? The God of the heavens? He, he, wants me, he wants to have a temple there in Jerusalem, in Judah. So I'm going to send you back. Go rebuild the house of the Lord. That's what he's doing. That's what they were there for. But the people were saying, no, it's not time. It's not time for that. And go to verse 4. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? So the people are forsaking what God had called them to do to rebuild the temple, but they are investing in themselves. That's convenient, isn't it? It's very convenient. It's not time for the kingdom of God. It's time for me. It's not time for God's agenda. It's time for my agenda. It's not time for God's will. It's time for my will. Now, the reference to paneled houses implies that the people were taking great care of themselves while focusing on their own comfort, while focusing on their own desires. One author I read speculates that the people may have been using material that they had procured for the purpose of rebuilding the temple and now spending it on themselves, using it for their own comfort, their own personal gain. Truly, they were seeking their own kingdoms instead of seeking to build God's kingdom. Friends, they had things out of order. Haggai was calling them to put first things first. He was calling them to consider their ways. And in verses 5 and 6, and then again in verses 9 through 11, Haggai is now connecting the dots between the hardships and the difficulties and the trials that they were facing in life with their unrepentant disobedience. Look at verse 5 and 6 again, if you will. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is born. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. It's as if they get their pay, they put it in a bag, and by the time they get home, it's all fallen out, they don't see it anymore. Nothing is going good for them. Nothing. Go down a little further, verse 10 and 11, and there's a famine in the land. They don't have wine and oil and all this stuff. Why? Because of their disobedience. Because they have forsaken what God has called them to do, and they have now focused on themselves, on their own comfort, on their own desires, on their own way, on their own this is a problem. Famine, lack of resources, hunger, all connected to their disobedience. Friends, let me ask you this question. What difficulties, what frustrations, what trials are you facing in life? What hardships, what struggles? Could it be that God is trying to get your attention? Could it be that God is calling you to consider your ways? Life's trials are an occasion for self-examination. 
Life's trials are an occasion for self-examination. Now, hear me say this. I'm not saying that every trial and every difficulty that you face is the direct uh, consequence of some specifics in your life. That's not what I'm saying. But perhaps some of them are. The point is this. Life's difficulties, life's trials, life's hardships are an occasion for us to consider our ways. How often do we evaluate our lives? How often do we evaluate our priorities, our relationship, what we're investing in? I'm reading a book by well-known pastor James McDonald right now. It's on change and transformation. And based on James chapter 1, verse 5, uh, and God's promise to give wisdom to those who ask Him for wisdom, McDonald argues that the wisdom he's speaking about is wisdom so that you might understand the trial that you're facing. Like, what's going on? What is God trying to do? How am I supposed to change? Why is this taking place? But the problem as I see it is this. Too often, rather than examine our lives really think about what's going on in our lives, to consider our ways, to reflect on what's taking place all around us and with us, our families and in our lives, we often go through life ignoring our sin. We often go through life ignoring it and blaming others for it. We make excuses. And none of us is immune to this, right? We can all run this direction. We make excuses. Hey, you know, if she wouldn't do that, then, then I wouldn't do this. And really, my problem is all these past hurts, all these things that happened to me in my past, that's why I'm acting out this way now. That's why I'm doing these things now. And if I would have just had a better example growing up, you know, if, if I would have just had a better example, a better picture of what it meant to live a godly life or a Christian life, then, then things would be different today. And if it weren't for the internet, then I wouldn't have those struggles. And if I just had a little bit more, then I would be content. I would be just fine. If I just had a little bit more, I would be just fine. And if my parents, and if my friends, and if my youth leaders, and if my pastor, and if my teachers, and if my co-workers, and if my boss, and you name it, right? We go down these roads, and it's always someone else. It's always another cause for our people. I imagine that's what the Israelites were doing. I imagine that's exactly what the Israelites were doing. Well, you know, I know that God brought us back here to rebuild the temple. <clears throat> and it's been a while now, but, but just look all around us. We've got opposition. We've got people who don't want us to do this. And plus, we're not all on the same page anyway. So what are we saying? And not only that, we've got ourselves to look out for. We've got to take care of ourselves, right? And, and, and you know what? We've got a lifetime ahead of us to do these things. What's the urgency? And I gotta have a shelter on my own head. Isn't that one of life's basic essentials? Why is it that we're so good at justifying and rationalizing our sin? As Derek encouraged us last week in Psalm 
Well, the temple is alluded to here is a symbol of the worship of God. It's a symbol of the glory of God. It's a symbol of God's presence with his people and his faithfulness to his covenant and his glory over all things. But friends, if we're honest, that's not what the Israelites were concerned about. They were concerned about themselves. Too often, friends, that's not what we're interested in either. We are concerned about ourselves, our comfort, our stuff. This should be clear enough. The worship of God grows cold in the shadow of self-love. The worship of God grows cold in the shadow of self-love. When we are too busy making so much of ourselves, we minimize the worship and obedience of God. We minimize it. When we prioritize our own agendas, our own ways, what we're doing is saying, God, that's not important to me. What you want is not important to me. The worship of God grows cold in the shadow of self-love. Let's be clear. What we do with our resources is a clear indication of what is most important to us. Resources include a lot of things. We're going to talk about a lot of things here. How you spend your money. What you choose to invest in. What you choose not to invest in or what you choose to withhold speaks volumes about what is most important to you. And friends, there's no denying it. We can come up with all kinds of excuses. I just don't have very much. Or I need that new car. Or I'm saving for college. Or I'm paying for college. Or I'll start later. I have plenty of time. Look, I'm young. I have years ahead of me to get on board with God's agenda. I have years ahead of me. Friends, we're good at rationalizing and justifying our self-love. And this really brings us to the second heading this morning. In light of God's word, build the church. In light of God's word, build the church. Like the Israelites were called to rebuild the temple, friends, you and I are called to build the church. Or maybe I should say this way, to build up the church. Now some of you more theologically or any people here say, wait a minute, uh, the building isn't the church. The church is the people of God. You know, the temple of God is the people of God. Because the Spirit dwells the people of God, so now we are the temple of God, the presence of God. And you're right. So here's my question. How are you building up the church? How are you building up the people of God? How are you using the gifts that God has given you to bless the body of Christ for the glory of God? In 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 26, this is in the context of spiritual gifts. That's where Paul is in chapter 12. He's calling the motivation for spiritual gifts, love, in chapter 13. And then in verse 14, the use of spiritual gifts again. And he says, let all things be done for edification. Do you know what edification is? Building up. Let all things be done for the building up of the body of Christ for the church. Now, the American mindset, church is optional. Church is something I'll do when I feel like it. Church is something that I can be part of or be involved with or attend when I don't have anything else 
genuine commitment to God's people involves an investment of your life in the church. It's more than merely attending. It's serving. It's loving. It's supporting. It's speaking. It's sacrificing. It's helping. It's giving. Now consider this, friends. All that we have has been entrusted to us by God. Everything. Everything we have. Every gift we have. Every ability we have. Any money we have. It has been entrusted to us by God. So here's the thing. Here's the question to ask yourself. What are the gifts that God has given to you, entrusted to you, that you are failing to use for His glory? What are the gifts that God has entrusted to you that you are failing to use for His glory? And hear me. You utilize gifts and abilities and have experiences every day as parents and grandparents and students and employees and employers and as neighbors that could be used in the service of God's people. Every day. Let me just give you some examples. Just kind of thinking through the past several weeks and just a handful of examples came to mind. I think of Karen Gamage, long time tender member here. She's an artist. She uses her artistic ability to serve to the BBS ministry. I think of Claudia Rios, who uses her baking ability to make great cookies to serve in BBS. I think of Mike Jennings. Mike Jennings, who is a salesman, who God has gifted with beautiful handwriting. Okay, listen, I've never seen a man with more beautiful handwriting than Mike Jennings. Okay? And he uses it to serve through BBS. I think of Perry and jo Joanna Foster. Perry works with Excel Energy. Joanna is his wife. Uh, we're most of you don't know this, and that's okay. There are a group of people at this church who are serving another family that are attending regularly for a few years now to refinish a house because they've been living in a one-room place. One room. Family of six. They're finishing a house for them. Perry and Joanna have, have ran and pulled thousands of feet of electrical wire in this house. Think of Stewart Construction, Wes Holcomb and his crew using their connections and their God-given abilities to help in this process. I think of Stacy Giles using her administrative and her financial mind in order to serve one of our senior adult members, couples, in this church. I think of Brett Brown helping a college student think through his future. I think of Chris Hogue engaging a professing atheist on a regular basis with the gospel. I think of the Taylors through Life Tree Legacy Ministries serving in this community, loving and discipling kids and being an outlet for families to come to know Christ and to be built up in Christ. And friends, there are numerous other examples. The problem is for every one of those examples, there are many examples of indifference and disobedience when it comes to how we utilize our gifts for the glory of God. What blessings has God graciously given you that you have repaid with ingratitude by utilizing them only for your own benefit? and your own gain, rather than utilizing them to serve the body of Christ and build up the church. John Calvin says that we often love the gifts, but we forget the gap of those gifts. And we do that when we focus on ourselves. When everything is about us, when the gifts that God has given us, we use for our own personal 
ways. So the question that we should ask ourselves is, what are my priorities? What are my priorities? God is calling us to consider our ways. The Apostle Paul laments Philippians chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. He laments that he has very few people who are concerned about the welfare of God's people, noting that many seek only after their own interests and not the interests of Jesus Christ. Did you catch that? Many people don't care about the interests of Jesus Christ. They're not concerned about the welfare of God's people. They're only concerned about their own interests. So what are the interests of Jesus Christ? Glory to God. Obedience to the Father. People. Gospel. Salvation. Sanctification. The body of Christ. The church. So church, as we consider our ways, let us consider Jesus' ways. And let us put first things first. And while obedience, while following after Christ may be difficult at times because of external circumstances, let's not forget that Jesus Christ, who faced untold difficulty, persevered in obedience all the way to death, death on a cross. Not for his sin, but for our through extreme trial, through extreme difficulty, Jesus Christ followed the road to the end, the road of obedience to the end. He died on the cross for your sin and mine. And then he rose again on the third day. And he offers life and hope in him alone. He obeyed the Father in everything, taking on the form of a servant, denying himself, denying his own interests, and dying on the cross for sinners. And obedience is what God calls us to. And obedience is what His Spirit empowers us towards. Now the fact is, none of us are saved because of our personal obedience. Salvation from God's wrath and eternal life is found only by trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. In the person and in the obedience of Jesus Christ. But as those who are followers of Christ, those who have been saved by God's grace and by God's grace alone, we are called to die to ourselves, to take up our crosses, and to follow Jesus. That's what we're called to. So this week, will you evaluate your life? Will you evaluate your life? Will you examine your priorities? Will you examine your use of resources? What are you doing with the gifts that God has entrusted to you? And will you make adjustments for the glory of God and for the good of God's people? Now, in just a moment, we're going to transition to a time of invitation and reflection and worship. And during that time, if we have questions about what it means to prioritize your life under the will of God, come talk to us or let us know or contact us this week if we want to talk to you. If you have questions about what it means to serve this church or to become a member or a part of this church, Please come talk to us. Catch us this week. If you have questions about what it means to deny yourself, to carry your cross, and to follow Christ, the road of forgiveness of sins and eternal life, that anyone will know that, would you come and talk to us? Let us share what the gospel message is with you the hope of eternal life, the hope of forgiveness of 
this series in Hagar, I pray that we would be people who consider our ways for the first days first. We pray for you. Lord Jesus, thank you for the grace that you show us, even giving your word to us. It's not an easy message. It's not an easy message. Sometimes your word hits us hard because, because our hearts are pushed this way. But Lord, it is the word of life. There is no hope outside of you. We need you. We pray that your spirit will do the work that only your spirit will do within us and make us more like Christ. Make us humble before him and before you that we might be formed more into the likeness of our Savior and our Lord. Jesus, do your work now within us. Encourage us as a people. Give us grace to turn from sin to prioritize your righteousness. In 